everyone. Welcome to another episode of Supernatural George. I'm Mittens, and today we are going to be talking about Season 4, Episode 1, Lazarus Rising. Let the lies and manipulation begin, or like, maybe just get a lot bigger. (laughs) This episode was written by Eric Kripke and directed by Kim Manners, so the same team that did the previous episode, the Season 3 finale. Welcome to Season 4, where everything changes. The cosmology of their universe grows by an order of magnitude, and we see a far larger picture of what's been going on all around them all this time. Oh, and we get Cass. Yay! Finally! I started my research for this episode by going through my entire Tumblr tag for it, all 23 pages of it as it currently stands as I'm recording this. And it's just so much. So much. This episode will be referred back to in canon for the rest of the series. And even apparently into the promo trailer for the Winchesters. Everybody is wondering what on earth that shadow of Cass breaking through the barn doors is about in that promo trailer. How is this relevant to the Winchesters? Or is it just an Easter egg or a teaser for us? Or is this foreshadowing something we are actually going to see happen in the Winchesters? Who knows? But I'm saying this episode is foundational to the entire series. Everything before it is altered forever by what begins in this episode. This changes everything. It's a big one, and it's an excellent one. I have no idea how to make this episode be anything even approaching a reasonable length. Sorry about that. So I've chosen to just let myself ramble through it and run down a lot of tangents, and I'll probably have to edit out a lot of it (laughs) before I post it. Or I'll end up talking about Cass's entire arc and the course of his relationship with Dean and all of the arcs versus the author and we'll be here for a week. But I obviously want to do my best to make this a rewarding experience and share my love of this episode and my appreciation for why it stands out so importantly to everybody listening. It's just so hard when I just everything that it is and what will become of the next 275 or so episodes that come after it. It's just that important to me. I think I need to issue a few disclaimers about a few things right up front, though, just for everyone to understand where I'm coming from and how I will be talking about the show from here on out, especially as it relates to the character of Castiel. There's a lot of folks who love the fact that Cass is an angel, that he's this otherworldly, powerful, beautiful, multidimensional being, and I don't love that about him. What I personally love is his curiosity and his growing understanding and love for humanity. That was the one order he ever seriously took to heart of everything heaven ever instructed him to do, to watch over humanity and to love humans As much as, you know, Lucifer fell for for disobeying this order. Chuck cast him out for failing to love humans as much as he loved God. Cass didn't fail that one. Pretty much every other angel failed that one. That was the one Cass didn't fail. Of every order he disobeyed, he chose this one to hold sacred for himself. He chose humanity in every way. And in my biggest regret of the entire show 
was that he was never given that choice again. It was always forced on him, going back to his first reprogramming that we saw in season four, being forced to back to the angel mindset in full, being cut off from much of his power on a whim from heaven in season five, and falling pretty close to humanity even back then, and then being resurrected in uh, 522 with all of his powers restored, apparently better than ever. A lot of there was speculation at that time. Oh, is he an archangel now? Like, does he have super like more powers than a regular angel? now? Like, what does that mean? I mean, obviously that wasn't true, but, you know, he was completely restored to his angelic state. But we'll have a long conversation about that in 43 weeks or so. (laughs) His ascension to godhood, powered by purgatory souls and Leviathan controlling him. He wasn't himself during that. Having Metatron forcibly steal his grace, rendering him human enough that Metatron believed his soul would go to heaven after he died at the end of his human lifespan. And then choosing to steal another's grace for the sake of the mission because he believed he had no other choice if he was going to be useful. He needed to get back in the fight, and in order to do that, he felt he needed to do that. Well, I mean, he wouldn't have likely survived being tortured by angels without it, but, you know, it was his escape route. And he described his own actions as barbaric, and he was horrified by what he'd done. It's at that point where we really start to explore how he equates his powers with his sense of self-worth in some really self-destructive ways. He laments the loss of his own humanity, but will sacrifice it willingly if it can help him protect the people he loves. And it really started feeling like the show was pushing him back to a point where he could make that choice for himself, out past the end of the God-written narrative of the show, except it was too late and he'd already given himself to the empty. And it's a goddamn tragedy in every way. The fact that he never got that choice again, where he could lay down his weaponry and not have to be useful. He didn't have to be a soldier anymore. Just like everybody wants Dean to think that he could have retired from hunting. Well, yeah, Cass kind of wanted to hang up his halo for a long time, but couldn't because it was his burden to use the gift that he had to protect what he loved. That's just the story. So anyways, yes, I always was 100% supportive of a human cast endgame. And all of that is actually set up in season four. (laughs) That's his arc in season four. So throughout the rest of the series, that remains his arc. And he goes through ups and downs through it, just like Sam and Dean both go through ups and downs through their arc and how they feel about themselves at any given time and what they say they would choose for themselves if they could, it's often a good gauge for their mental state at any given time in the narrative. I will go into that in further detail as we go through the narrative, but I'm just saying the fact that he was never given this choice again, I'm pretty sure I know what he would have chosen easily and with no regrets if he was presented it in a way that he didn't have to have this responsibility and duty to the universe anymore because it never should have been his. The ending we got where he felt responsible for cleaning up heaven or reorganizing or rebuilding heaven horrified me. Um, We're not going to talk about that today. Let's not get into that today. Let's start at the beginning. 
He had wants. He had dreams. And it was all taken away from him in the name of defeating the author when he himself was the most meta slayer of the author in the entire narrative, which I'm going to talk a lot about over the course of the series. So I'm not going to belabor the point here, but I just needed folks to understand how I approach that conversation at all, because his entire arc is founded in what will happen to him over the next 22 episodes. And it's a crime how his arc on the show ended in that light. Okay, now that we got that out of the way, or not probably knowing me, I'm going to touch on it again and again because I can't help myself. (laughs) The show gave me brain damage. What can I say? Let's talk about Destiel. There were folks writing Destiel fic within hours of this episode airing. And while everyone who ships the ship really sees it at different moments in canon, there's just a lot in this episode. When you go back and look at it again with the full benefit of hindsight, we get everything from the handprint to love at first stab to I'm the one who gripped you tight and raised you from perdition. You know, (laughs) I should have had Tim do that for me. Oh, well. I think it's still among my highest note posts, but for the last seven years or so, September 18th and 19th and 20th, because this episode spans three days, dang it all, <laughs> I've been pushing my three-day anniversary celebration agenda. I could probably just let that post speak for itself and skip doing the podcast for this one, or not. but I I have an agenda here and I'm just letting you all know that right up front other things to expect out of this episode I will wail about the handprint as we go through it I will love on Pamela Barnes I will admire Ruby's entire arc I will scream about Barnes not just Pamela but like literal actual wooden building Barnes But I think we need to stop for a short discussion about the power of a good retcon, because this episode is the pinnacle of what a good retcon can be. They've pulled or attempted to pull a few very not great retcons that have totally flopped. But everything we get from this episode takes the past canon and says, yeah, but you were looking at it from the wrong angle here. What happens when we apply this lens to it and you can see a much larger picture and all of it working together? And that is a good retcon. It changes the story for the better. And that's a side tangent off this tangent. I'm really hoping that that's what we're going to get from the Winchesters. This kind of retcon that says, oh, you thought you knew what the story was? Oh, but look through this lens Oh, I can see it clearly now because none of the cosmology that the story is built on from this point existed until this point. Everything written before looked like a much smaller scope world. We started off with just monsters and, oh, some monster killed our mom and dad's trying to find her. And it just expanded to, wow, this there's this whole whole organization of demons out there who have big plans for Sam and what on earth is this bigger plan? And then we find out, whoa, that's only a tiny piece of the bigger plan and most of the demons don't even know what the grand plan is here. But we find out now. And it's like, none of this was planned. None of it. But they took what they had laid down and said, how can we make this into a bigger picture? And they did it excellently. And yeah, there's still like little 
oh, well, that doesn't quite fit. Well, you can find a way to make it fit. You can just get a crowbar and wedge it in there. Or you can just hand wave it and go, oh, well, for some reason that doesn't. It's usually a tiny detail that people get hung up on completely. So while I've tried to explain away all of those things as we've come to this point, hopefully everybody's at least happy that we are now in what we think of as the modern era of supernatural. Like, I think of everything after we're introduced to heaven and we finally have most of the main players on the board that stay through the end of the series. Demons, angels, heaven, hell, and obviously we'll get purgatory later and we'll get leviathans later and then we'll get the darkness and then we'll get alternate universes and all that but that's all just offshoots of this moment expanding the universe this way so i think this one's really important in the way they went about setting this up because they could have just said okay everything up to this point doesn't matter we're introducing a completely new story here and it has nothing to do with the past no they tied it all together and chose to do it that way and just enlarge in the universe And I love them for that. Okay, this is getting really long now. Um, But so is our list of bonus features that we have for this episode. We have cutscenes, which are actually available to watch online. And I will link the video link to the post for this podcast episode so everybody can enjoy it. It's the barn scene with a few extra lines. It's only like two and a half minutes long. I highly recommend everybody watch it because... There's no musical score to it. You could hear a pin drop. It has a different sort of gravitas to it than a scene with the musical score telling you how to feel in every moment. There's something more real about it and just laid bare. So yeah, everybody can go enjoy that. We also have casting sides for Pamela Barnes, for Castiel, and for, quote, Christy, who is actually Ruby, as we all know. Spoilers. But they are definitely worth the read. They're only a few pages apiece because they demonstrate just how secretive they were being about what the plot of season four would be. Castiel is not revealed to be an angel in his casting sides. I think everybody has heard this story by now of how Misha went in for his audition, believing he was auditioning for the part of a demon. Even the casting sides that we have, it's unclear and sort of implies that he's a demon, without giving anything away the character he's acting opposite in the casting sides which is basically the barn scene is just called guy and it's entirely not clear that it's dean the casting sides for pamela eliminate dean from her scene entirely and it's just her talking to sam and bobby and dean's lines are there but they're given either to sam or to bobby dean's just completely cut out And Christy, it's not stated at all that she has any other identity. It's the scene in the motel room when Bobby and Dean show up, but it reads as if only Bobby showed up. It's acted as if Dean was there, except all of the lines refer to Sam talking to Bobby. Like Christy walks in and and sees Sam and Bobby fighting and is like, what, are you two together? And... Sam says something like, no, no, he's my father, which is a weird thing for Sam to say even about Bobby. Like, has he ever said that about Bobby to his face? Like, I don't know. And I'm, it's supposed to be, no, he's my brother. It's just amazing to read these scenes recontextualized. We know Dean is in those scenes, 
but they're not in any of the casting sides. And it's kind of fun to compare, especially Pamela's casting sides, because we also have the call sheet and daily sides from the shooting day of all of Pamela's scenes from Thunderbird Dinwiddie, who played Pamela, to compare to. So you can see how each line changed between the casting sides that were trying to keep all these things secret and what happened. And in the summoning scene in Pamela's casting sides, she specifically mentions calling on a demon named Azazel. It's just weird sounding when it was supposed to be Castiel. At this point, we all know who Azazel is, but an actress going for the audition for that role would have no idea that Azazel was a character that was already used on the show, and we all know what he looked like. Yeah, yellow-eyed demon. It spared them having to make any sort of spoilers public in any way. You'll see this, like, the casting script that got leaked about the Winchesters is probably that weirdly altered and mangled because they don't want spoilers to get out from every actor they send casting sides to. So they write a fake script like they did with Ruby's original casting sides that we had from season three, where it was a completely made up scene. And like with Bella's casting sides, that was just a completely made up scene. They do this a lot especially for newer shows that are casting an entire cast and they need scenes and sides for everybody. This is just how Hollywood works. So never put too much faith in leaked pilot scripts and stuff like that because they're almost always just garbage casting side stuff. But at this point, since I intend to talk an awful lot during the actual episode, I think I'm going to cut myself off here and tack on anything else I remember later at the end. I normally pick two or three posts from a tag on Tumblr to add to the post as well. And today I think I've got like nine. I whittled it down from like 230, okay? I got, be glad it's only nine. (laughs) But I'll link all those posts that are a lot of different meta from a lot of different eras of the show. So we've got something for everybody there. And with that, We will hit the road so far. Anyone else always think of ACDC's You Shook Me All Night Long as a Destiel song because of this episode? Yeah, me too. The opening shot of the Road So Far segment is Sam, Dean, and Bobby standing over and throwing a match and lighting a fire. It's the three of them now. The show isn't just about Sam and Dean anymore. Bobby officially in the previous episode has said, I'm your family now, whether you like it or not. Sam and Dean pretty much agreed that Bobby is their family now, which is important in this episode and how Dean returns to Bobby's. So I'm just making a special note to point it out. We're then reminded of Ruby's existence, that she's a demon and we don't trust demons. And we're reminded of Lilith and that she's still out there. That Dean made a deal, sold his soul to hell, got one year to live. And then we're reminded of, via montage of all the completely badass things that Sam and Dean achieved last year while they were killing some evil sons of bitches and raising a little hell. The tagline from every opening credits of last season. Well, they proved the point. They really squeezed a lot of hell raising into 16 episodes. We get a brief refresher of the previous episode that Sam had promised Dean that he wasn't going to go to hell, that he would save him no matter what it took. 
and that Lilith holds Jean's contract, that Ruby's was taken over by Lilith, and, well, exactly what played out in the previous episode. Dean gets chewed up by hellhounds and dragged to hell, while Lilith is apparently powerless to kill Sam after that. And the road so far ends on that final scene that we saw in the previous episode, zooming right on down into Dean's eye and seeing that he is definitely in hell, and he asks for somebody to help him and then screams Sam's name. And then we cut to now, where we start in complete darkness, and then get a really flashy sequence of scenes that alternate between bright white light and like reddish glow of Dean's eyes looking terrified with these horrific screeching and screaming sound effects flashing with the lights. It's hard to watch if you uh, have any sort of issues with flash rates, but definitely gives the impression that Dean has seen some shit in hell. And then a lighter flicks. And we see Dean gasping for breath and trying to regain his voice. It sounds like he hasn't had anything to drink in days. Oh my God, the poor guy, just give him some water. Screaming for help, but almost nothing comes out because he's in a wooden box buried underground. So he starts pounding and fighting his way out. When he finally breaks the lid and the dirt comes crashing down over him and extinguishes the tiny light he had from the lighter in his pocket, he just starts pushing his way up and out into the bright daylight, pushes his way out of his own grave and just lays there in the sun looking absolutely just exhausted. This is the first time in months that he's been free and it's got to be terrifying in its own way because is this an illusion? What's going on? What's happening? He doesn't really know that yet. I was asked once long ago, how, how come Dean's lighter had any fluid in it? Like, how did it light after being buried in his pocket for four months? And it's like, well, Cass restored him. He probably could have filled the lighter up for Dean. <laughs> Maybe angelic lighter fluid. You know, he managed to fix his shirt. You know, his shirt's not covered in blood now and not torn up like it was at the end of the last season. He's still wearing the same outfit. It's just not shredded anymore. Why bury Dean in his own casket? Why not just lay him down on the ground? No, he. they made him fight for it. They made him fight to be alive. He could have just stayed there and played dead. It's almost like he had to choose to crawl out of his coffin and return to life. And the music and sound effects all through this just make you feel like it's a hot day. The grinding sounds that play as he crawls out and then stands up. And apparently it was a very hot day. It was one of the first days of filming in July. He's told stories about how miserable it was being buried under the ground to crawl up through the... It wasn't like he was actually in a coffin under there, but, you know, the device that they had set up for him to crawl out from, it was unpleasant (laughs) on like a 90 degree July day. And then we get the shot panning all around him and then zooming up to the crane shot overhead where we first see just his shadow and the shadow of the cross marking his grave. And then it zooms out real fast. And you can see all the trees gone down, like Tunguska. The episode of The X-Files that references Tunguska was also directed by Kim Manners, who directed this episode. So that was definitely a reference that he was going for here. Something exploded hard that returned Dean to his grave. 
It wasn't just a gentle laying of him or return to life and set right on his feet. No, this was cosmic. And that sets the tone for this entire episode as Dean begins to try and figure out what has that kind of power. And it's something he's never credited as being real, ever. And yet it is. And it cares about him personally, which is for a dude who was like, uh, yeah, no, he doesn't want to be singled out like this by the universe. And yet here he is. I love that he just looks pretty much into the camera as he's taking all of this destruction in and being like, what the hell is going on? And then we get the awesome new title card with the white screen with all the birds flapping frantically over it and the demonic growly noise in the background. We've seen hell. Now we're going to meet heaven. Pretty much only different in uh, aesthetics. Pretty much the same exact scenario happening in both places. And I know we've all tried to work out the timeline of this. Like, why is this gas station closed? Why does it have today's paper if it's actually closed? Did the guy just shut his shop down for lunch? Where the hell did he go? Why is nobody here? And you know what? What if this was all just set up to be convenient for Dean when he got out of his grave? Like, if he'd been planted in the middle of nowhere, he had human needs food, water, money, a car, all that stuff. Well, this is a convenient setup. Maybe this was all just prearranged by Chuck or by Cass even. Or the owner was just like conveniently removed from the premises so that Dean would have access to all of this stuff. Like, oh, he's going to need these things because he has nothing and he can't just fly wherever he wants to be. So I like to think that there was some cosmic hand in setting this entire thing up, which feels right considering it's the first place that Cass attempts to approach him. It's also a place where Dean is able to find everything that he as a human being needs. Phone booth, car, water, money, food, whatever. So it just seems very convenient. And all the decorations on the building like wing, positive, no smoke, Feels like it was there on purpose. Dean first goes straight to the water. Good for him. Love that shot of him just being totally relieved after a long drink of water. And it has Misha Collins' name at the bottom of the screen. Yeah. But he goes to the newspaper and he gets his first idea of the date. He now knows how long he spent in hell. And I think he's trying to reconcile that with his lived experience or died experience. I don't know. His memories of everything that's happened to him and what feels like 40 years. To him, it feels like he spent longer in hell than he was alive before he went. A lot longer. I mean, he's 29. So 40 years in hell, he thinks he's spent there. But we don't know that as an audience yet. To us, it just looks like him trying to figure out when and where he is. And he is to an extent, but he realizes that only four months of time have passed on Earth while he experienced what felt like four decades in hell. And he also knows that he's, for some reason, in Pontiac, Illinois. Considering he knows he died and was dragged to hell in Indiana, how did he get 200 miles away? Well, I have a post about that, too. (laughs) It's not really important to this episode, but it provides an explanation for that. But Pontiac, Illinois is where Dean was planted. Pontiac, Illinois is where Jimmy Novak lived. Just convenience. Dean washes his face takes a look at himself in the mirror and lifts his shirt, expecting to see scarring or something. 
because as he does, we get flashbacks to him being torn to shreds, but his skin is completely unmarked. And then he rolls up his left sleeve and hisses because it clearly stings like a burn. And we see our first glimpse of the handprint on his left shoulder. And from the look on his face, that's not something he remembers getting. And it's not something that he has any explanation for. And it's kind of terrifying. Dean goes around with a plastic bag, filling it up with snacks and bottled water to take with him. And then he stops and stares at the magazine rack, which for some reason has a bunch of like lifestyle magazines and one copy of Busty Asian Beauties right at the front that just says hot. And it's got a woman in a red dress with a steamy, flamey background and it has special features. But the other magazines are honestly far more interesting. One of the lifestyle magazines has a headline on it that just says, I got my body back. And it's an article about Britney Spears, about how she lost some weight or something. I got my body back. But Dean, yes, did just get his body back. Another one says it's about Brad Pitt and Angelina Jolie. But all it says is in big letters, you can see Angel in and then the letters are you to do. So angel are you to do? Yes. Okay. Sure. But that's a hint. Angel. Another one has the words cool bag on it. Like, okay, yeah, Dean needs a cool bag. <laughs> Cause he's been in the hot box all this time. <laughs> Let's get it. Upgrade him. So yeah, the rest of the magazines are far more interesting than busty Asian beauties, but that's the one Dean picks up as he sort of half rolls his eyes at himself for even doing so. After he's got what he needs as far as food goes, he goes over to the cash register, and there's a small amount of cash in there. He starts collecting it, and a TV behind the counter turns on, and it's just snow, and he turns it back off. And then a radio on the counter turns on, and it just plays random sound music, and Dean's about to turn it off, but then the TV turns itself back on again. And he looks out the window like, oh, shit, is something coming for me? This is a supernatural thing. Could be demons. So he grabs a canister of salt and begins salting all the window frames as a piercing noise begins to scream to the point where he's got to cover his ears to protect his ears. But he's unable to continue. The noise becomes so painful and overwhelming that it shatters the glass in all the windows as Dean tries to crawl to safety. And yes, Kim Manners insisted that they use actual glass. This is not candy glass. And Jensen actually got cut pretty badly crawling around on the floor through broken glass for this. After the final window breaks, if you look at his arm, he's got a Band-Aid on the inside of his left arm. So whatever this was just blew past blew out all the windows, and he thinks of it as having been an attack because how the hell else is he supposed to process what he just witnessed? He takes some of his change and goes out to the payphone booth outside. Remember phone booths? Aw. This little gas station is such an anachronism. I, th- I think it was probably just an abandoned place that got stocked with stuff that Dean would need. That makes the most sense. Anyway, moving on. Dean attempts to call Sam first. But his phones have been all disconnected. So he calls Bobby. Bobby hangs up on him. Doesn't believe it's Dean. So Dean calls right back and says, Bobby, listen to me. It's Dean. 
And Bobby's like, no, if you call me again, I'm, I'm going to kill you. He thinks someone's pranking him. He doesn't know it's actually Dean. So Dean looks over and sees that little old junker car. And he's like, well, I guess I'm committing Grand Theft Auto now. We have to assume at least six or so hours later. It's a long drive from Pontiac, Illinois to Sioux Falls, South Dakota. Dean knocks on Bobby's door. And Bobby looks absolutely shocked. Dean's like, surprise. I don't know what Dean was expecting, but Bobby does not believe it's Dean, even when he sees him with his own eyes. Dean enters the house and Bobby just slowly backs up. He's like, I don't believe. And Dean's like, yeah, me neither. But here I am. And Bobby had inched back to where he had a silver knife and he takes a swipe at Dean with it. He thinks he's some sort of monster impersonating Dean. Dean goes through the whole, your name is Robert Stephen Singer. He full names him. You became a hunter when your wife was possessed by a demon. And you're about the closest thing I have to a father. And it looks like Bobby is about to believe him. He reaches out and slowly touches Dean's shoulder and like feels that he's real and solid. And then he goes in with the knife and attacks him again. Dean grabs the knife and turns Bobby around and it's like, I'm not a shapeshifter. And Bobby then yells out, then you're a revenant. But Dean has now wrestled the silver knife away from Bobby. So Bobby does not have the weapon anymore. Dean does. And he uses it to roll up his sleeve and cut his own arm to prove that he's not a revenant or a shapeshifter because neither of them could do this with a silver blade. And the look he gives his own arm before he cuts into it. He looks down like regretful as fuck. Like I finally escaped the place where they cut me up all day and I have to cut up other people all day. And I get to a place that's supposed to be home and family. And I have to prove myself to the people I love by carving into myself yet again. When you know the full story of Dean's time in hell, this scene just takes on so much more heartbreak, it's painful. And then Bobby finally looks at him and is like, Dean? And Dean's like, yeah, I've been trying to tell you that. And Bobby gives him a great big hug. And just as Dean thinks he's finally been accepted, as Bobby pulls back, Dean gets a face full of holy water. Because one last test to make sure he's not a demon or possessed by one. Bobby asks him how he busted out, and Dean's like, I have no idea. I just woke up in a pine box, and now that Dean has been accepted as really him for who he is, they go into Bobby's office, where Dean spots the collection of empty whiskey bottles that Bobby had been going through, and comments on it, and Bobby reminds Dean that they hadn't been having an easy time of things. I mean... Yeah, compared to Dean's time in hell, they'd been having an easy time of things, but they were all grieving his death. Here he is alive again. Dean is in no way ready to share what he experienced in hell. Don't even need to pause to let everybody know that the holy water Dean gets splashed in the face with here is actually lube because water doesn't show up on camera in that way. It drips down his face. It's it's lube. Poor thing. But Bobby says, you know, it doesn't sound right how he just popped out of hell and into his coffin and he has no idea how he got there. So Bobby points out also that even if he could have escaped hell and gotten back into his body, it it should be a horror show. (laughs) And Dean agrees. He's completely healed, not just returned to his four months dead body. Dean insists right here that he doesn't remember any of his time in hell. And there's always been debate Was he just lying about that? 
or was he legitimately unable to recall his time in hell at this point? And I just keep thinking he's had all of this time from the time that he began digging himself out of his grave till he walked however far to that little gas station where he tried to call Bobby twice and got hung up on and disbelieved. Dean is like, oh shit, how much can I say before people are just going to like not believe anything of it? And do I want to burden anybody with this? He's had at least a six hour drive from Pontiac to contemplate how he was going to handle this because he's probably not really handling any of it. How the fuck is he alive? How is he back in his healed body? How real even is any of this? And he's terrified of what he remembers, which we won't find out fully for like 10 episodes. So yeah, I think he's totally compartmentalized it and is trying to figure out what the hell is even going on. How is he out of hell? What happened to him while he was there? And the guilt and the shame of everything he did while he was there. He's just trying to put his life to figure out how any of this is even happening at all. So he can backburner that because Dean is the king of backburnering shit that he can't deal with right now. And until he figures out how he's out of hell and why he's out of hell, he can wait on, oh, by the way, yeah, I remember hell. Because by the time he finally does break down and tell Sam about it, it's clear that he is deeply, deeply traumatized by it. It's even clear later in this episode that he is deeply traumatized. And I don't think it's due to a lack of him being able to remember it. I think it's due to extreme compartmentalization. That's just how I view it. That's how I talk about these episodes. So I just want people to be aware that, yes, I'm talking about these episodes as if Dean remembers every minute of hell because he will later, and I don't think it's something that he slowly recalled over time. I think it's got that he's in there right now, and he's just too scared to look at it or think about it right now. Dean tells Bobby, you know, he tried to call Sam, but his number has been disconnected, and Bobby replies, well, he's alive as far as I know, and Dean's relieved by that, and he's like, wait, what do you mean, as far as you know? And then Bobby explains that Sam went off on his own, insisted on it, insisted on isolating himself to the point where he even disconnected his phone and has been out of touch with Bobby for the most part, which is weird. And it presents a fear that is very much in our minds who watched Mystery Spot. We know what happened to Sam after Dean died in Mystery Spot. Well, now he's had four and a half months of basically running around on his own and he has a target and it's Lilith. Bobby tells Dean about how difficult these last few months have been after they had to bury him. Dean asks, well, why did you bury me? Bobby's like, well, I wanted to give you a hunter's funeral, but Sam insisted that you'd need a body after he got you back. And that has Dean concerned. Did he make a deal? Did he summon Ruby and do whatever it was that she told him to? Sam did not want to be found by Bobby. He was hiding everything he was doing from Bobby. And Dean is absolutely convinced that Sam did something stupid, made a deal with some entity, or did something awful because he describes the gravesite to Bobby as bad mojo, and it looked like a bomb went off. And then he takes his shirt, rolls up his sleeve, and shows Bobby the handprint on his shoulder. 
Christine also describes the force or presence that blew past him at the gas station and blew out all the windows as it went past. When Dean shows Bobby the handprint, Bobby jumps to his feet like he's never seen anything like that at all. And he looks shocked and freaked out. And Dean's like, I guess, you know, some demon yanked me out or rode me out. And Dean is pretty convinced that it was because Sam made a deal with this demon because it's what Dean would have done. I mean, it's what Dean did when Sam was dead. And he's mightily disappointed in Sam just thinking that. Like, didn't we have this discussion before I died and went to hell that we wouldn't just keep destroying ourselves to save the other? Dean knows exactly how to find Sam, though, even though Bobby said he'd been trying for months. Dean just calls up the cell phone company, gives him the name and social security number information, and locates Sam's phone in Pontiac, Illinois, right where he got raised from the dead, just adding fuel to Dean's belief that Sam was responsible for him being resurrected. At the Astoria Hotel in Pontiac, Illinois, they knock on Sam's door and Ruby answers. They don't know it's Ruby. It's just some girl answers. And they're like, I think we must have the wrong room. And she's like, oh, where is it? Where's the pizza that it takes two guys to deliver? And I think that is like a code. Sam's been trying to stay off the radar. They have needed a warning, a heads up if any hunter or any other monster or whatever found them. Ruby is going incognito from other demons, but she also knows what this bigger plan afoot is. And I love that if Bobby found Sam, she didn't want her identity to be known because Sam didn't want Bobby to know what he'd been up to all these months because he's been working on his demon powers and trying to hide that from everybody, which is why he went off the radar in the first place. So Ruby wearing a different face, he probably wouldn't want to out the fact that it was actually Ruby. They've had this set up. Like if they ran into anyone they knew, this was their go-to. Fake it. When Sam comes out and sees Dean, Sam lets him walk a few more steps closer and then pulls a knife and goes in for the attack. And Dean's like, not again. Oh my God, we just I just went through this with Bobby. And Bobby tries to separate them. He pushes Sam back off Dean's. Like, it's him. It's really him. And then poor Ruby in the background is, has to fake that she's some rando who has no idea who they are and says, oh my God, is this, are you like together? So she picks the most uncomfortable insinuation and Sam has to reply, no, no, it's my brother, even though Ruby obviously knows this. But while Bobby's explaining all of this to Sam, Dean's like, what do you mean? So you didn't do this, do something to bring me back? And Sam is just wildly confused because no, no, he didn't. Once Ruby leaves, Dean and Bobby both start grilling Sam what it costs to bring me back. And Sam's like, didn't cost anything. I didn't do this. Dean does not accept Sam's insistence that he did nothing. Sam even says, I wish I had done this, but I didn't. And Dean just gets right up in his face and yells at him to tell the truth because he doesn't know that there's any other way that he could have gotten back out of hell unless Sam had made a deal or done something far worse. And that's when Sam finally cracks and he's like, he feels like such a failure 
because he wasn't able to save Dean from that. He tried everything, including trying to open the Devil's Gate, trying to bargain with any demon, but none of them would even talk to him about it. He tried, and he failed. Right now, he's just feeling that frustration of his own abject failure. And Sam is apologetic, and he can't even look Dean in the eye. He's like, I'm sorry. I'm sorry I couldn't get you out of there sooner. Like, I'm sorry I wasn't the one to save you. They do believe Sam, but now they have a bigger question. Since Sam didn't pull him out, what did? So now that everything's congenial and comfy again, the three of them sit sit down with a beer and talk about what's been going on. Dean's like, well, how'd you end up in town if you weren't here to dig me out of my grave? And Sam starts telling the story of what he's been up to. Once he realized he couldn't make a deal or find any way to save Dean... He decided to go hunt Lilith down for some payback. And Bobby points out, by yourself, like your old man, like that's really reckless and crazy and stupid. And Sam's like, well, yeah, because he's, again, not admitting to you trying to use his demon powers and working with Ruby still. He does not want anyone to know that about him because he hasn't been working alone all this time. Sam had been tracking some demons in Tennessee when all of a sudden they booked it to Pontiac, Illinois yesterday morning, right when Dean popped out of the ground. So Sam followed them. That's the only reason he was in town. He was trying to figure out what these demons were headed towards. And he had no idea about Dean until he walked through his door a few minutes ago. Dean figures the two are connected, all these demons rushing up there, right when some what he believes is a huge demonic force pulled him out of hell. It seems like too big a thing to be a coincidence. And then Bobby starts asking him, yeah, well, how are you feeling, by the way? You know, you feel a little demonic. And Dean's like, how many times do I have to prove I'm me? And Bobby reminds him, what demon's going to let you out just for kicks without expecting something in return? So they've got to have something awful planned. It's not just the demons that have something awful planned. The entire cosmos has something awful planned for the Winchesters all the time. So, just another day for them. But they've got no answers, so Bobby suggests they go visit a psychic friend of his a few hours away, who might at least be able to point them in the right direction. While he's off contacting her, Sam and Dean finally get to talk brother to brother. All the time that Dean was dead, Sam had taken the necklace that Dean always wore that Sam had given to him when he was a child, and he takes it off and gives it back to Dean. And we get our first direct massive lie. Sam asks him point blank, what was it like? And Dean's like, what do you mean, hell? Uh, I blacked it out. I don't remember a damn thing. And then he goes into the bathroom and looks at himself in the mirror. And he may have pulled off the lie with Sam, but looking into his own face, he has a series of screeching flashbacks just like the very first opening scene of his eyes flashing in the mirror which is one of the reasons that I always believe that he absolutely remembers every second of hell and Sam poking him about it unlocked the box just enough for this to escape for him to have to think about it and have to cram it back down and he's just staring at himself in the mirror waiting for the thoughts to just put his mind back on track Like, how long can he keep up this lie? Will he be able to get past this enough to just never tell Sam the truth about his time in hell? 
just like Sam. He's thinking, oh, can I just get past this? And so I never have to tell Dean the truth about how am I going to. But he's got to face Dean every day now. And he still intends to continue working with Ruby and doing his evil demon power stuff. And he just does not want to explain any of it to Dean. Dean's little secret is a little easier to keep for a lot longer. They follow Bobby to Pamela's house. And, of course, when Dean is so happy to be back in his car until he sees the iPod jack that Sam installed. And we get to hear, like, two bars of a Jason Mann song before Dean just gives Sam a glare and rips the thing out and throws it into the back seat. Like, no, no, no. Not in my car. And honestly, even though, you know, Sam thought it was his car and the only thing he did to change the car at all was to add his own music. Hmm. I think that's pretty mild, Dean. At least he didn't cover the car in bumper stickers or, you know, hang fuzzy dice from the mirror or anything weird like that. You know, he just he just put his own music player in there and it was easy enough to remove. It wasn't even a permanent change to the car. So (laughs) I appreciate Dean's overreaction, though, because that's how I feel about my cars, too. While Sam and Dean are in the car alone, though, they have time to talk a bit. Dean's like, yeah, it's one thing I don't understand. The night I got dragged to hell, wasn't Lilith there to kill you? Dean was expecting to find Sam dead, especially after his phone was disconnected. And he was kind of even scared to bring that up to Bobby. Like, did Lilith kill him, too? Did Bobby have to bury both of them? And Sam says, well, she tried. And he describes what we saw, that flashing light, nothing happened. She got scared, smoked out, and ran away. But I mean, we obviously know that was just a total setup to show Sam that, oh yes, your demon powers are still there. They're just dormant. You can work on them and make them stronger with Ruby when she comes back telling you that she can save you and all this other stuff. And Use your powers for good to defeat demons, just like you did with Lilith, without even knowing what you were doing. Oh, yes. What an enticing lure for Sam, though. Dean is immediately suspicious, though, as he should be, because Lilith could have put on a big old light show, and she probably could have killed Sam there. But that was never her plan. But Sam just assumes that he's immune to Lilith's power, which is another reason he would have felt okay about not keeping in touch with Bobby while he was chasing after Lilith, because what was Lilith going to do to him? He's immune to her power. Dean next asks about Ruby, and Sam immediately, without hesitating, replies that she's dead. He's not sure. And we know he's lying through his teeth about that, because that was Ruby in the hotel when Dean and Bobby showed up. We know that. We know Sam's a lying liar who lies, And he's about to lie even harder because Dean's third question is, so what about your freaky ESP? Are you using that? Because you're suddenly immune to demon powers. What else can you do with your powers? And he proceeds to completely lie through his teeth. Again, telling Dean, it was practically your dying wish, so I didn't go down that road. And Dean is not about to argue with him again and call him a liar again. He's going to take Sam's word on it because... Dean would have at least given some heed to Sam's dying wish. He did. He stopped hunting for a year when he thought Sam died. I mean, he still looked into ways to try and save Sam from hell, even though Sam said not to. But he stopped hunting. That's huge for Dean. Sam couldn't even obey the one dying wish that was 
don't use these powers, they're evil, don't ruin yourself for me. And Sam lies about it, because he thinks he's doing the right thing. He thinks Dean is just wrong and weak for not wanting to try. They arrive at Pamela's, and she greets Bobby like an old friend. And then she looks at Dean, and she's she knows exactly who he is, where he's been, and the fact that he got out of hell. Pamela hasn't been able to find anything through her spiritual contacts, and is going to set up a seance to get a peek at whatever it was that pulled Dean out of hell. Dean and Pamela engage in a little bit of light flirting, and when Sam laughs at his brother's antics, she tells him he's invited too, and Dean's like, you are not invited. Once she's set up for the seance and has everybody join hands, she's like, I just need to touch something our monster touched, and reaches for Dean's lap, and Dean's like, oh, no, no, he didn't touch me there. He pulls his shirt off his shoulder, and this is the first look that Sam gets at the handprint. I'm not even sure that anyone had mentioned the handprint to Sam until this moment, because he gives Bobby a look like, what the hell? Dean is kind of like, I don't really want to show anybody this, but Pamela lays her hand on it. And I realize I kind of haven't said all that much about the handprint and all the metaphysical theories about what it was and how it ended up on Dean's arm and Obviously, I haven't even begun to talk about or think about why it disappears off Dean's arm in season six, because that doesn't happen for a very long time. But I could probably do a whole episode just on the handprint, and there's several posts and tags that I'll link to for people to read about it. But the theories that it was just some artifact of Cass resurrecting him, putting his soul back in his body or that it was some sort of connection between them. You know, their more profound bond. This becomes like a visual symbol of that. There's theories about, you name it, there's theories about the handprint. But it's clearly something big, and not something that happens every time an angel saves a human. That there there is some bigger connection as a result of that. And that is how I think of it and see it and talk about it. So I might just casually mention it, but there's a lot of baggage that comes along with those casual mentions. And even though I don't want to take an hour and discuss all of those theories in this episode, just know that they're there and I will put links for folks to read stuff. Okay, back to the seance. While Pamela's invoking, conjuring, and commanding the entity to appear before them, Dean opens his eyes and is looking around like, uh, is anyone uh, gonna show up here? Across the room, Pamela's TV turns itself on, just like the one did back at the gas station, and he is a little bit freaked out. And then Pamela says his name, Castiel, and Dean's like, Castiel? But the entity is warning her to turn back. But she refuses to stop. Even Bobby says, maybe you should just stop. They've got a name. They've got Castiel. They can look that up. But she pushes on until the candles all flare up into a fireball and her eyes burn white and she falls out of her chair. She wanted to see Castiel's face and it was the last thing she'll ever see. And now Dean is even more convinced that there's something absolutely evil about the thing that dragged him out of hell. Because what else would do this to this woman? Back in Pontiac, 
Sam and Dean go to a local diner. Bobby called to let them know that Pamela was stable, but now completely blind because of this. Dean ordered some pie in this diner, and they're just waiting for it to come back. And Sam's like, well, we don't even have any leads. And and Dean's like, oh, that's not true. We've got a name, Castiel. Dean's theory is they just set up a summoning ritual, summon this thing, and have a face-to-face with it. And Sam's like, are you crazy? It Pamela just took a peek at it and it burned her eyes out. You want to bring it there in person? Are you out of your mind? Sam's like, well, I got a much better idea. I followed some demons to town. We'll just find some of them and see what they know about this. That is conveniently when the waitress brings over Dean's slice of pie and then sits down in the chair at their table. Like, okay, you wanted to talk to us? What do you want to say? Because she's a demon. In fact, everybody else in that little diner is a demon. These demons clearly want to have words with them as well. This is a very antagonistic conversation. The waitress lady assumes that Dean knows exactly how he got out of hell and who brought him and accuses him of lying when he tries to tell her he has no clue. And he's like, I'd really like to know. So if you'd enlighten me. And she responds with more antagonism, like, "Uh, mind your tone or I'll drag you back to hell myself. And Sam flinches at that, like he's going to try and fight her or defend Dean or some way. And Dean just holds up a hand and, you know, like, chill, Sam. I got this. But Dean has figured it out. No, she wouldn't drag him back to hell because she's just as freaked out as they are by how he got out of hell. And they don't have any idea who pulled him out any more than Dean and Sam do. But Dean's like, if you don't know who it was, it's above your pay grade, and whatever it is, clearly wants me out, and they're a hell of a lot stronger than you. You will not touch me. Because what? remember, we know what Dean's been doing for the last 40 years. He spent 30 of them being tortured, so her little threats don't seem significant to him anymore. And he spent 10 years after that doing the torturing. So he's just as good as giving back as she is. He is pulling out his new skills. He just reaches out and slaps her across the face twice. And she just sits there and takes it. This is the terrifying side of Dean. I think I've heard people use the excuse that, oh yeah, he must not really remember what happened to him in hell or he wouldn't have this much bravado about it all. And I'm like... No, he remembers exactly what it's like to be a torturer. This is exactly what he's doing here. He's using those skills. And possibly the most insulting thing he can do to her, he and Sam get up from the table to leave because clearly they're not getting information there. And clearly he's not going to get to stay and eat his pie. Poor Dean. He reaches in his pocket and drops some cash on the table and just says, for the pie, and walks out. And as they're crossing the street back to the Impala, Dean's like, holy crap, that was close. Sam tries to insist that they go back in there and take those demons out. And Dean's like, "Uh, we've only got one knife between us and there's three of them. And Sam's like, well, we can't just leave them there. They're dangerous. We can't just, you know, let three demons operate a diner in this town. That's just wrong. He wants to get rid of them because that's been his impulse lately. See, demon, get rid of demon. But Dean's like, no, not not as long as the smarter brother's back. We're going to do this the smart way, not the crazy way. 
because, of course, Dean doesn't know the truth about how Sam has been getting rid of demons. Dean insists that, no, these demons are scared. They're terrified of whatever yanked me out of hell. And we're going to focus on one thing at a time here. Let's worry about the big mofo who pulled me out. And then we can come back and worry about these three demons. Back at the Astoria Motel, Dean has fallen asleep on the pull-out sofa bed. And Sam sneaks out, takes the Impala, and drives off. We assume maybe to go back to the diner to take care of those demons without Dean and without Dean knowing. Because to Sam, that's his job. He's got to handle them. More is the better that Dean will not see him using his freaky psycho powers. Pretty much as soon as Sam drives away, the television and the radio both come on in the room and wake Dean up. And he's instantly on guard. Rolls off the bed, picks up the shotgun that he's got handy, and aims it at the door like whatever is activating these things is going to come walking through the door. Instead, the mirrors on the ceiling above the bed start cracking and the noise starts up and he has to cover his ears and the windows blow in and all the glass in the room just starts shattering and falling and Bobby rushes in to pull Dean out of there. And poor Dean is just cowering on the floor with his hands over his ears, just covered in blood from all these busted mirrors. But during all of the chaos, Dean noticed that Sam was not in his bed. As they drive away, Dean calls Sam to ask where he went. And Sam's like, oh, I just went out for a burger. And Dean's like, in my car? And Sam's like, oh, yeah, I guess I forgot. (laughs) And Dean tells him that he and Bobby are going out for drinks. Which is also a lie, but it's no more false than what Sam said about going out for a burger, but he's really going back to that diner to murder demons. So, hey, Bobby's like, why didn't you tell Sam what we're really doing? And Dean's like, he would just try and stop us. We're going to summon this thing, just like Sam said no to earlier in the day. And Dean's like, I need to see this thing. I need my questions answered. But Dean is scared. He's like, we don't know what this thing is, so we'll just be prepared for anything. He's like, what other choice do we have? And Bobby's like, well, we could choose life. (laughs) And it's like, yeah, Dean doesn't feel like he has a life, really, until he figures out why he was even brought back to life in the first place. Back at the diner, Sam breaks in, picks the lock, finds one of the demons face down on the floor. He rolls him over and his eyes are all burnt out, dead. And while he's marveling at this, like, holy shit, the same thing that burned Pamela's eyes out did this to a demon, he's jumped from behind. And we see it's the waitress from earlier. Sam doesn't have the magic demon knife because Dean just showed it to us. He's got it in the car with Bobby. So all he's got is himself to fight this demon off. He obviously felt comfortable enough going into a place where he knew there were at least three demons completely unarmed. So it's not terribly worrisome to him, even if it's worrisome to us thinking, oh shit, no, Sam doesn't have the knife. No, he has demon powers. But as he's fighting this waitress, he finally gets a look at her face and he's like, your eyes, her eyes are burned out as well, but she's alive. She's like, I can still smell you. That's how she was fighting him. She admits to Sam, though, that she saw the thing and he asks what it was and she's like, we're all dead. We're all going to die. And she won't tell him what she saw. She just tells him to go to hell. And he's like, funny, I was going to say the same thing. Holds his hand out and starts using his freaky demon powers 
to pull the demon out of the body and send it to the floor where it dissolves into a little hell puddle. Sam walks over and checks for a pulse and doesn't find one. And he's like, oh, damn it. Because we know he has been using his mind powers because he's been able to save a lot of people, but he can't save most of them. And he definitely can't save ones that Ruby didn't personally serve up to him because she's been picking and choosing who Sam gets to exercise all this time. So he's been able to have a pretty great save percentage. He doesn't in the wild on his own because most demons, their hosts just don't survive. We've already learned that last season. They hammered that one into us. But he believes because he needs to believe. While he's mourning the loss of this life, Ruby comes in from the back of the kitchen and she is just smiling at him like, yeah, he did a good job using his demon powers. And that's when Sam finally uncovers the truth for us. It is Ruby. But until that point, the first time you watch this through, you have no idea that that's Ruby. Sam is finally getting to confer with her again. Like, we thought this was a high-level demon that dragged Dean out, and Ruby's like, "Uh uh-uh, no way. It's way too powerful for that. We who've already watched the whole series know that Ruby knows the whole big plan. She knows exactly what this creature is. She knows it's an angel because it's all part of Lilith's grand plan that an angel has to pull Dean out of hell because all of this has to go according to plan to raise Lucifer, to have the apocalypse. So Ruby has to at least be aware of angels at this point because she doesn't lie to Sam. She just describes the thing saying it's cosmic. Not even Lilith could pull this sort of stunt. When Sam asks what could possibly have done this, she just replies, nothing I've ever seen before. Because, nope, she has not seen an angel or she wouldn't have eyes. She's just telling the truth. Not that she doesn't know what it is, just that she's never laid eyes on it. Meanwhile, we cut to an abandoned barn. And inside, Dean and Bobby have spray-painted the whole interior of it with sigils and symbols of all sorts. Like, you name it, it's up there. Dean's got wooden stakes, iron, salt, silver, everything he can think of to use as a weapon against this thing. And they're still not sure they have enough. Bobby tells Dean again that this is a bad idea. And Dean's like, yep, but we're going to do it anyway. And Bobby begins the summoning ritual. We cut back to Sam and Ruby in the diner. And Ruby's like, okay, what are you going to tell Dean about what you've been doing? Sam's like, I just got to think of the right way to say it. And Ruby's like, "Uh, he's going to find out one way or another. He doesn't hear it from you. He's going to be pissed. And Sam's like, he's going to be pissed regardless because he's, quote, hard headed about this psychic stuff. As if it was like Dean just not wanting to understand it or whatever. Instead of the fact that Sam had been manipulated into even thinking it was a good idea to use it in the first place. Sam just insists that Dean would try and stop them, which, yeah, he would. Ruby offers Sam another out. She's like, uh, well, I could just step back for a while so you and Dean can get yourselves on the same page and then you can get back to me. And Sam admits that he's not sure he's doing the right thing with the psychic stuff. He has doubts about it. He admits he doesn't even really trust Ruby But he also admits that he likes saving people and stopping demons. 
if he can use it to save other people, he's all in with that. He wants to continue it. It's like, dude, Sam, oh my God. The road to hell is paved with good intentions, Sam. Back at the barn, Dean and Bobby are just bored out of their minds waiting. Just as Dean asks Bobby if he's sure he did the ritual right, and Bobby gives, rolls his eyes in response, wind picks up outside. The roof panels start shaking and clanging, and they realize their thing is about ready to show up. At least they didn't have a TV and a radio to turn on and make horrible noises at them. Dean's like, maybe it's just the wind, and then the light bulbs all start exploding above them, and the barn doors where they've been barricaded, snaps like a twig, and they come swinging open, and in comes Cass. Well, some dude, they'd have no idea who it is, but he looks like the most innocuous monster ever to exist. And he just casually strolls through this hail of sparks, while Dean and Bobby are firing shotguns at him. He's not even flinching. He walks past every sigil and every devil's trap and everything that they've painted in this barn, Like, it's completely irrelevant to him, because it is. Dean picks up the demon knife and hides it behind his back as Cass approaches him, and Dean's like, who are you? And we get the most famous line, I'm the one who gripped you tight and raised you from perdition. Dean's like, yeah, thanks for that, and then just stabs him in the heart. And the look of shock, when absolutely nothing happens... Castiel looks down at it like he's mildly inconvenienced that he now has to pull this knife out of his chest. And Dean is like, I have never seen anyone react to getting stabbed in the chest like that without even moving, just being like a bug bite. While Dean's standing there stunned, Bobby comes from behind with a crowbar and tries to whack Cass in the back of the head. Cass just casually reaches up and stops the crowbar from hitting him. And boops Bobby on the forehead, and we hear the whispery noises of angelic magic happening. And Bobby drops to the ground, dead asleep. At least not dead dead. Dean doesn't know that Bobby's just a snooze. Cass just turns to him and is like, we need to talk, Dean. Alone. Cass is just casually off to the side, looking through their books. While Dean's crouched over Bobby, checking to make sure that he's going to be okay, like checking his pulse. And Cass says, your friend's alive. And Dean's like ultra suspicious of him now. He's like, who are you? And he just replies, Castiel. And Dean's like, yeah, I got that part. What are you? And Cass looks at him like confused, like Dean should have understood this or something. He's like, I'm an angel of the Lord. And Dean's like, that's got to be wrong. Cass tells Dean that this is his problem, that he has no faith. And it's like, well, Dean's got a lot of faith in what he can see for himself. He just has no faith in God, who's never done anything for him personally except cause him a hell of a lot of pain, or angels that he's never seen before in his entire life. They had a whole case about it, that it was not an angel, that his mother used to pray and told him angels were watching out for him. And he could not believe in that because if they were, then she wouldn't have died the way she did. They wouldn't have been plagued by demons. His life would not have turned out this way, at least as far as he understood it. He didn't understand just how closely the angels were very specifically watching over him because they wanted him to be in this exact spot, in this exact moment, to do exactly what they wanted him to do, and that angels weren't there to look out for him and protect him, except this one. This one is different, Dean, and he'll figure that out. 
But Cass proves his identity to Dean by flashing the bright light and displaying his wings as shadows that Dean can see. Dean accuses him of being an awful angel for having burned out that poor woman's eyes. And Cass has just got an answer for everything. I warned her not to spy on my true form. It can harm humans to see it. Same with my true voice, but you knew that. And Dean's like, what? You mean the gas station and the motel? That was you talking? Too loud, buddy. But it's like, geez, Cass, you should have figured out that if you were screeching at him loud enough to shatter the glass around him, he wouldn't care if you were singing him lullabies. It was, (laughs) you know, you could have been professing undying love to him. And it shatters all the glass around him and like literally threatens his life from the physical damage you're doing to his environment. (laughs) Then maybe that's not the best uh, way to talk in general, not just to humans who can't hear your true voice. Like, do you have an insurance policy to cover this sort of damage? Cass is like certain people, special people can perceive my true visage. And he thought Dean would be one of them, but he was wrong. And that's sort of like the opposite of the way Ruby's been building Sam and his powers up. Like, you're special. You've got these powers. And like Lilith showed that he was, quote, immune to demon powers by not being able to affect him. Well, Dean is apparently vulnerable to angels by having Cass be able to affect him like that. He doesn't have a problem with Michael's true form because he's the true vessel of Michael. He doesn't know that yet. He won't know that for a year. But we know that. And so it adds a layer to all of this, knowing that from the future of the show, that Dean is being specifically manipulated to feel smaller, less important. I mean, yes, Cass is here to tell him they have work for him, but always in a way that keeps Dean in his place. I mean, that's not Cass's choice to do it this way. These are just his orders. And this is just how this whole scenario has been set up to build Sam up and to knock Dean down. Even though Sam's being built up with hell juice and Dean's being knocked down by his importance to heaven, which is beautifully ironic. Cass explains that he's using a vessel, a devout man who prayed for it, Dean's offended that he's possessing a human being just to talk to him. Now Cass is like, oh no, no, this is totally valid. He's happy to be an angel vessel. Like, I'm sure he wasn't happy to be stabbed in the chest. Rude. (laughs) But at least angels heal their vessels and, you know, it didn't kill Jimmy. But being disintegrated at the end of the season, well, so, hey, whatever. But at that point, Dean is just like, nah, nah, this is a bunch of bullshit. I don't believe any of this. Who are you really? And Cass is insistent. He's like, I told you. And Dean's like, uh, yeah, why would an angel save me from hell? Some rando guy who means nothing to nobody. Why would you save me? Cass just replies with good things do happen, Dean. Yeah, it's a good thing he's not in hell anymore. But oh boy, there's always some other thing out there. Nobody ever just does random good things like this on this level for free. Dean replies, not in my experience. Good things don't just happen like this. And this is a clearly huge revelation for Cass. He comes right up into Dean's space and looks right at him, confused. You can see the confusion on his face. He's like, 
you don't think you deserve to be saved. Like, I don't know, was he expecting Dean to just immediately fall to his knees in gratitude and feel the joy of receiving heaven's divine blessings and being raised from hell? No, Dean's deeply, immediately suspicious. Cass doesn't really process these sorts of self-worth issues. Oh, but he will. He'll get to experience all the self-worth issues for himself firsthand. So he'll get it. It's just going to take a couple years. So when Dean just does his best to push that whole curiosity about his self-worth aside, he's like, it's okay, so why'd you do it? And Cass replies, because God commanded it. Because we have work for you. And Dean is immediately deeply suspicious about this. What kind of work do you need specifically from me so bad that you pulled me out of hell to do it? It can't possibly be anything good. And Dean's innate suspicion of this sort of thing works to his advantage right from the jump. Of course he doesn't believe he deserves to be saved. Of course he doesn't think good things just happen without having to pay a price for them. He's used to paying prices for things. He's been doing it his whole life, and he just spent 40 years in hell paying the ultimate price for saving Sam's life. You don't just get good things for free, especially after what he's done. But yet, here's someone who insists that he's an angel sent directly to him by God himself, who Dean also doesn't really believe in, with a specific mission and purpose, and it was important. He has no idea what to make of any of this. And that's how we begin season four. And it's a doozy. I think the one thing I really just want to know is I have to assume that they went back to the motel room. That if Dean and Bobby didn't clear out all their stuff or when Sam was done doing whatever he was doing with Ruby, went back to that motel and saw the smashed glass And Sam knew that those demons knew nothing about whatever it was that dragged Dean out of hell. He was just going there to exercise them. And yeah, he's upset that the one he thought he might be able to save did not survive. But he ran out to save these strangers when Dean was like, our most immediate concern is finding this thing that dragged me out and is now haunting me and like following me. And this could be a very, very dangerous thing. This is our number one priority. And yet Sam is sneaking out to go do this side job that has nothing to do with anything except his own personal feelings to feel good about himself if he could have saved somebody. And it's like, dude, Sam, you were gone from the room for like less than 10 seconds before this big scary thing came and attacked Dean again. And Yes, they know what it is by the end of the episode, and that sort of takes precedence over this whole conversation. But it's like dereliction of duty, maybe, Sam, to just leave Dean like that, thinking you know best. We always talk about how Dean's kind of bossy and is always saying how he knows best, and Sam is always sneaking off like this to do things that end up being like really awful choices. It's just another thing that just bugs me about Sam sometimes. It's just like he spends this entire season basically getting stomped on by the narrative for these choices. So I feel vindicated in stomping on him just a little bit (laughs) in how I talk about him. 
And I mean, I get that they're using this as a drug addiction metaphor. And so Sam is displaying a lot of behavior like an addict would, keeping everything very secretive and making excuses to himself and to Dean and hiding what he knows Dean would disapprove of and trying to convince himself that Dean is just wrong for disapproving of it. But it's all very drug addict sort of behavior. And I know that's what they're doing with him, but I still find it really, really hard to reconcile with Sam as a character because it gets a lot of people hurt and especially Dean. And I could probably keep talking about this episode for another hour, but it's already way longer than my last few episodes have been. So I'm just going to put a pit in it until next week when we'll discuss Are You There, God? It's me, Dean Winchester. Because, who boy, this guy's got some serious questions for the universe right about now. And the beauty and symmetry of season four takes off. And we will end with every question answered finally, inside-out fashion. But it will just prove everything Dean has been suspicious of right. And it's very refreshing. And he will have a new best friend, ally, and someone who he probably cares more for than anyone in the entire universe except for Sam. And he doesn't realize it yet. But knowing it and rewatching this episode and watching him meet Cass for the first time and seeing how baffled Cass is by humanity in general and Dean in specific, even though he has sat in heaven and watched the entire history of human life unfold but he so desperately wants to. He's curious. How can this man think so little of himself and so much of everybody else and the whole world and the love that he tells Dean he sees in him in his final episode? He's going to learn that in this season. He's going to begin to understand Dean. And Dean is going to begin to understand Cass. And it's a beautiful thing. Meanwhile, Sam and Ruby are off doing their own thing, and Ruby's manipulating Sam exactly how she wants to, and Sam is going to lie through his teeth to Dean for another few episodes, and there's going to be angst and pain between the brothers. But this is such a good season overall. It's probably the narratively tightest written season of all of them, except maybe season 15, until you get to those final couple episodes. And then the narrative falls apart because that's what happened. It's not my favorite season, but it's definitely the one I would say, yep, they knew where they were starting. They knew where they were going to finish and they wrote everything in between exactly to fit that. As a writer, I'm just going to flail about this season a lot. Oh, but the character development we get. The character development. Anyway, until next week. You can always find me on Tumblr or Twitter at MittensMorgul or at SPNGeorge. You can find me on Discord at Mittens hashtag 4865. Or you can email me at MittensMorgul at gmail.com. And I can't wait to talk to everybody again. I love this episode so much. I didn't even mention my Dean Cassversary that much during this, but you know, we'll think about it being September 18th and the first time I remembered that was like I pointed it out to Mr. Mittens Tim and he's like oh yeah our you know our anniversary is the 19th and I was like holy shit yeah well you know what Dean and Cass didn't really meet until very late the 19th or early on the 20th when they got to the barn so 
we can actually turn that into like this whole long three-day weekend not just Cass pulling Dean out of hell not just Dean climbing out of his grave but this whole long weekend of those moments but also culminating in Dean and Cass meeting face to face for the first time and I'm perfectly content to not just say yes happy cast day on the 18th or happy Dean popped out a hell day on the 18th I enjoy being able to savor this for the long special holiday it is anyway have a good one everyone